Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void and you consider joining our Patreon, not only do you get cool perks, you make this podcast possible. All right, yo, what are we getting to today? Well, it's January. Actually, this is the first podcast we have we are recording for 2023 of our year in the Lord or whatever the fuck they call it. I just uh, the other day when it was like, oh, it's the second anniversary of January 6th. I'm like, no fucking way. Dude, everybody <laughs> I talked to, everybody I talked to was like, no, I had no clue. Two years, dude. It's only been one year. We all like everyone has collectively had this Mandela effect. Maybe not you. But everyone I've spoken to, which is maybe like one and a half people, yeah. but they were like, yeah, dude, I thought it was, <laughs> I also thought it was just a year ago. But yeah, that was two years ago. Yeah. Um, it, which kind of blows my mind. It's the pan- so, pandemic brain. Yeah, dude. It's fried, homie. Fucking 2020 <laughs> to like through basically now has all become one long fucking year of never ending pain. Straight up. But, but we're all back to work and everything is like kind of feels normal but yeah we're all still existing in this weird limbo of like what fucking day is it what year is it and i I barely know like if i didn't have screenings on monday i would not know it's monday yeah 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 like literally that that is the one thing that saves me consistently is like oh i have something to do on monday it's been it's been over a hundred mondays since (laughs) since (laughs) january 6th Jesus Christ, man. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, speaking of Mondays, I guess we'll talk about what else happens in January besides insurrections. And, <laughs> I don't know. Dude, something I just did. I never thought we'd talk about on this podcast, but, uh, it, you know, sorry about that. Eh, I mean, it, there's still fallout from it. Like, <laughs> there's still finding motherfuckers who, like, fucking basically doxing themselves that they were there. Yeah. It's like, come on, dude. There's no statute limitations on, like, treason yeah or fucking insurrection it's like you know they got pulled the dude from bob's burgers jimmy pesto <laughs> he's fucking he's he's fucking he's aced his career they is got done. bob they didn't get bob though <laughs> <laughs> what is his name i can't remember the fucking guy's name he's done a ton of voice stuff but anyway speaking of mondays and it's january which means one thing january giallo which you know been doing that for a couple weeks at this recording also been doing it you know across the country i think last podcast we said we had eight confirmed venues it ended up being it's actually 10 nice 10 so uh, the one thing i mentioned was cinema salem in salem massachusetts Kay lynch from salem horror fest i think on the night of this recording did a cool double feature of mario baba's blood and black lace as well as cat shay's kind of jello adjacent um strip to kill and then the marketing manager of Cinematic Void, Eddie, actually wanted to do a show in San Diego. So he put together, a, it's going to be a secret screening. I guess we can say what it is because like, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be done. It's um, Strip New for Your Killer down in San Diego. So that brought us up to 10 venues. So yeah, last week of, of this recording, which I got to remember, like, well, time's a flat circle. It's, you know, some people still think it's only been a year since the insurrection. It's been two. Anyway, so last week could be fucking four years by the time you listen to it. Whatever. I just went to, you know, Salem, Mass, and um, Brookline, Massachusetts, because I went back to the Coolidge Corner Theater. 
and present it torso 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 it saturates the screen with terror torso rated r there with um the great mark anastasio one of the great fucking genre film programmers of all time shout out to mark for inviting me back up and we showed a italian language print of torso there and they did live subtitling and it was fucking great hell yeah you know it's it, i brought my fucking stupid fucking green 70s smoking jacket and yellow turtleneck and introduced the shit out of it so it, it was cool also ran to Kay lynch from salem horror fest when i was in salem for a few days also should mention i drove in snow for the first time in 12 fucking years I'd like to avoid it forever if I can. I wasn't I wasn't supposed to snow. It was supposed to rain. All of a sudden, I'm like driving around. I'm like, oh, fuck. It's snowing. Yeah. Did you feel, were you safe? Did you do all right? Yeah, I did all right. I mean, it wasn't sticking. If it was sticking, I'd be another thing. Plus, I had a relatively newer car. And, you know, had a good time. And um, tomorrow, after recording this, I'm flying to Denver to go to the C Film Center to introduce Deadly Games. Nice little American Gialli. So... Got a couple other trips. I want to be going to the music box later this month and doing tightrope. I do like them picking a lot of the non-Italian like films for this, but tightrope is a Clint Eastwood doing um, let's say cruising somewhere in there, but not really full cruising. But it's a pretty good American Gialli, I think. Cool. Get to hang out with the homie William Morris. Uh, you know, Will. I used to work with Will at the American Cinematheque. He went to Chicago. He does music box of horror. You know, puts together that giant 24-hour marathon they do, and then plus they do year-round programming now, so that's cool. I haven't seen Will since, like, I think 2019, maybe? I think it's 2019, so I'm really excited to actually hang out with the homie again. A couple other things I should mention. We talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, like the lineups and stuff, but I should mention um, I'm doing a Q&A with Barry Primus for Autopsy. Right on. You know, he's... Barry's been in a few Scorsese films, amongst other things. And this is the only kind of, like, jolly film he did. And it's a really good one. I don't know if you've never seen Autopsy, have I, you? I have not. It's definitely a little bit of art, art house slow burner. So, it's like, someone constantly is like, hey, Barry's my film pr- professor. Is it okay if he comes out? I'm like, hell yeah. But the one, I'm really excited for it. And we've talked about it. I know who fucking killed me. And the director, Chris, is coming out. And who's been coming to January Giallo screenings, like, all month long. Oh, awesome. He came and introduced, he came and introduced himself to me after a Formula for Murder. He's like, hey, Jim, it's me, Chris. I direct I Know Kill Me. I was like, oh, shit. Please do a Q&A. So, Sweet. So he's going to do that. And it's just like, I, I'm really stoked because I've been talking up that. I've been talking about Know Who Killed Me every fucking screening. So it's like, it's like cool. I, it makes me happy that he's there. And, like, he's stoked for it. Super, super sick. Very exciting. Uh, I guess we should talk about some other things that are coming up in the void. Um, February, it, not everything's locked down, but we can kind of talk about the the lineup, which is coming. It's going to be uh, February's theme is Killer Obsession. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, like, you know, people obsessed with catching serial killers. One of the things I'm most stoked about, because I didn't think there would be a film print, was Night Game which we talked about a few podcasts ago mm-hmm. or a baseball episode. Yeah, yeah. So I we wrote the distributor. I thought it would be like, you know, DCP or whatever. And like Park Circus is like, oh, actually, we, there is a 35 millimeter print of that. And I'm like, 
I'm fucking super excited to watch Night Game on film. I yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. why. Yeah. No, that's a cool one. Dude, it, I, I don't know why. I'm also showing Manhunter, um, Strip to Kill, and I'm going to be doing Tightrope here. So. Nice. So, if you don't live in Chicago, if you're in L.A., you get to see Clint Eastwood's bare ass all greased up and in red lighting and Tightrope. Because that's the selling point of Tightrope, I guess. But. <laughs> But, yeah, that's what's coming up in February. And then February is actually the seven-year anniversary of Cinematic Void. So we're going to – I'm going to be doing a marathon, except I'll be doing it in March because February is award season and need to use the arrow to do a marathon. Oh, nice. So – and basically when it's award season, studios are spraying the money hose on, you know, getting some dates and stuff. So it's like – you know, can't blame the Cinematech for saying, like, eh, can you wait till March? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. So, I mean, I'm excited because it's going to be a seven-film marathon kind of going over, like, you know, previous things I've screened in Cinematic Void. So, I, I kind of want to do it as, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I kind of want to do it where none of the titles are now. So, it's going to be a seven-film marathon, all 35 millimeter. Okay. Playing, playing the hits, as they say. So... But, you know, we talked about what's all coming up. We should actually talk about what this episode's about. And since it's January and it's January Giallo, you know, we tend to do Giallo-centric episodes. And I thought this year kind of intentionally avoided it that we'd finally do an Argento episode. And obviously, you know, the inclination was to do a bunch of them. But I was like, we don't, you're pretty busy with print traffic and learning, you know, projecting and shit like that. I'm going to be on the road. I was like, let's just do one episode and maybe spread the Argento love over the next couple of seasons or whatever. Mm -hmm. What's a podcast? Does it have seasons? I mean, we don't really take breaks. We took a, you know, four month hiatus on an accident kind of, but yeah, we don't really do seasons, whatever. So we're just going to spread it out. And you and I talked about it. And it's like, why don't we talk about two of our favorites? And it just made sense. I'd say two of our favorite Argento movies. So we're going to be talking about Deep Red and Tenebrae. And we actually did something a little different that we've never done in like the three years or however long we've been doing this fucking podcast, which is we sat down in the same room and watched the movies together. Bo- both of them. And unplanned, really. I mean, it just it just kind of happened organically. Yeah. And it's so. like... Because I previously watched Deep Red on my own, and I think you started it. And then just one night, you're like, or I don't know how it happened. We're just like, hey, let's just fucking watch Tenebrae together. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about it is, like, you know, we didn't watch it straight through. We kind of talked through it and pointed stuff out. And you would pause it, and you would ask me questions. Yeah. And, like, probably should have recorded that. But, like. <laughs> well, I, I think that one worked worked well that way in particular because it's one that we've both seen multiple times already. Whereas Deep Red, I've maybe seen it one time before, and it was so long ago that like I really need to to just focus when, yeah. when we watch that one. So I mean it it was it was kind of cool and I think mm-hmm. that's how we're going to do it from now on yeah, we're yeah. going to do these like movie watching episodes. We just, you know, maybe watch both of them together, maybe we spread it out over a couple of days like we did for these two, but I mean, it's definitely helpful. Like it's helpful if I would have had you here to like coach me through fucking like hack a lantern, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I just can't hang. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, it's probably the best way to do it, but it's just like, it didn't work out at the time. And now it's just like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. We'll make it work. And I, it, I think moving forward, this is the way we're going to do it. Cause it's like, it, it makes it easier. Cause then it's not you know, watching on your own and me watch my own and like fucking typing out a million notes. We're actually talking about 
we're going to end up talking about. So, without further ado, why don't we take a little commercial break here, and when we return, we'll be talking about Dario Argento here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. JMB Scotch Whisky, il più svitato, il più amato. Last week, our daughter-in-law Nancy had us over for spaghetti dinner. Well, it was not bad. Even my husband Angelo liked it. Then I found out it was ragu spaghetti sauce from a jar. Well, before I could say anything, Nancy told me it's made from the same things I put in my own sauce, like ripe tomatoes, Romano cheese, spices, herbs. This week, I made ragu sauce, and it's better than Nancy's, eh? <laughs> ragu spaghetti sauce. That's Italian. Welcome back. It is January Giallo here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, and we're talking about a few films by one of the genre's greatest filmmakers, Dario Argento. And up first, we're talking about, I consider maybe the quintessential, you know, Giallo film by Argento. I think it takes everything he do- did previously in the Animal Trilogy, amplifies it and I'm kind of torn between um Mrs. Ward and this on what I really think is the best Gialli film ever made. Okay. I I think they're both terrific. I think they're top 2. Mhm. Which which one's one or two? I don't I I kind of lean Mrs. Ward cuz I think it's more straight ahead, but like this is a fantastic fucking film regardless of where you rank it. It is from 1975, obviously directed by Dario Argento, and of course we're talking about Deep Red which is also known as Profondo Rosso, which is Profound Red. It also was released in the States as the Hatchet Murders. In Japan, it got the swanky title of Suspiria 2. I, no, I have not heard that before. That's that's awesome. It's pretty fucked up that it came out in Japan after Suspiria, and they're like, Suspiria 2! Fuck yeah. And if you want your title with a little more flair, it was also released as Dripping Deep Red. Love it. Which kind of sounds like the porn version of it. So sick. The film stars David Hemmings, best known for starring in Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, which is exactly why he's in this film, because there's some similarities. There are. Quite a bit. It also stars Daria Nicolotti, who is Argento's longtime partner. She co-wrote Suspiria with him, and she basically is starred in, or is featured in all of his films from Deep Red to Opera, although... She's only got a little cameo in Suspiria, which is where the riff started, so to speak. But she, you can also see her in Mario Baba's Shock, which, if you've never seen it, is one of the great, like, kind of creepy, spooky, you know, supernatural, like, kind of kind of movies. So definitely check it out. Also has Gabrielle Lava, who appeared in other Argento films, including Inferno and Sleepless, as well as Beyond the Door and Zetter. Um, Maka Morel who is in Belle du Jour and Alan Lado's ultra-sleazy Last House on the Left Rift, The Night Train Murders. Nicolette Elmi, who's appeared in countless Italian horror masterworks, including Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood. Alan Lado's Who Saw or Die, which we talked about last year. Luigi Bazzoni's Footprints and Lamberto Bava's Demons. And last, but certainly not least, is Clara... Kalmani, who appeared in tons of Italian films starting in the late 30s, but if you want some sort of void point of reference for her, she was in this anthology film called The Witches. She's in a segment directed by Franco Rossi, but the film is also featured segments by Visconti, Pasolini, De Sica. I've actually never seen this movie, but I'm kind of curious just based on everyone involved in it. 
the film was written by Argento and Bernardino Zapponi, who worked with Tinto Bras as well as Federico Fellini. We're going to be talking about a lot of heavy hitters. It's kind of interesting that all the beloved art house you know, Italian filmmakers, there's a lot of cross-pollination between them and the genre filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of interesting because, like, you kind of get it in, like, the U.S., but not to this extent, you know? There's there's very rarely you can find, like, someone from Texas Chainsaw Massacre being in, like, you know, a Scorsese film. Right. Or something like that. I'm probably saying something so like, well, actually, and it's like, I'm just pulling out my... I'm just, you know... Yeah. Whatever. We're getting to the point. (laughs) Yeah. The film was shot by Luigi Caveller, who doesn't get the love he should, but I think he's one of the best cinematographers that came out of Italy. I mean, he also shot Argento's Five Days, as well as Lucio Fulci's A Lizard in Woman's Skin, which I just screened in the Lost Fields 3, that beautiful Technicolor print, as well as The New York River. He did Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, Blood for Dracula, and Flesh for Frankenstein, just to name a couple of the bangers he worked on. The film was produced by Argento's father, Salvatore, and his brother, Claudio, which basically since a bird, they basically produced all his films from a bird with a crystal plumage through at least Tenebrae, and we'll get into that when we get to Tenebrae. The editor on this film was Franco Fraticelli, who edited most of Argento's films, starting with, again, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, through opera. The only exception was Four Flies on Grey Velvet. That's the only one he didn't edit during that period. He also, uh, Franco was also a frequent collaborator with Lena Wertmuller, who did, you know, Swept Away and Love and Anarchy and stuff like that. And he also edited films for Argento Protégés, Michele Sobe and Lamberto Bava. The film's production designer was Giuseppe Bassan, who started working with Argento on The Five Days, which is incredibly, really well-made production design film. He also worked with him on Suspiria. Again, this guy knows what the fuck he's doing, as well as Tenebrae. And just to throw it out there, he also worked on Inverter Lindsay's Cannibal Ferox, just to give a little variety here. The music of the film is by Giorgio Gasolini for the jazz music, and then a little band called Goblin did the rest. You ever heard of Goblin? No, a little bit. A little bit? Just a little bit. And for those who haven't seen it, which seems kind of weird that you're listening to a podcast that's going to be full of fucking spoilers from here on out, basically a jazz pianist and a wisecracking journalist are pulled into a complex web of mystery after the former witnesses a brutal murder of a psychic. So, do you remember the first time you saw a Deep Red, Nick? Yeah, it was probably the probably late nineties, I would say. Um Yeah. I was just thinking about the the wisecracking uh <laughs> journalist here. There's uh yeah, it's been it's been a while, man. It's been a while since I've seen it, and then when I and and I didn't remember much. So that so this <clears throat> excuse me, this watch was uh was was big for me for for a number of reasons. Uh, and as you had mentioned earlier, I had started watching it and then just like kind of abandoned it. Like, Oh, I'll, I'll watch it again before we record, you know, whatever, whatever. And, uh, and then, like you said, we, we ended up watching it together, but, uh, you know, wisecracking journalist, I, I didn't see those jokes you oh, know, yeah. when I first started watching shit like that. Like there's plenty of things that I just kind of missed. They're just like, Oh, there, this is a funny movie. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of many things that that I, I learned on this this new watch. So 
Which is kind of cool because, like, you know, and we talked about it as we were watching the movie that, like, a lot of people kind of just view, you know, movies like this as one thing. Oh, it's a horror movie. It's this and that. No, this is a well-constructed, like, dare I say, fucking art house movie. Yeah. It's, like, it's no different than a lot of the fucking European or, like, the highbrow Italian cinema was coming out. Mm -hmm. It's just it has people getting fucking murdered. And there's jokes, there's humor, there's, like, you know, flashy camera work. It's well fucking made. It's incredibly well directed. And that's the kind of thing I hate that people kind of, like, dump on these movies. They're like, oh, you know, they're just a horror movie. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Like, well, But not only are – I mean, you know, when I initially watched it, yes, to me it was just a horror movie. But it was still those Argento kills that you can – that you really only get from him. Oh yeah, you know those perfect. I mean, the the first one when the psychic gets killed. I mean, she gets pulled through that fucking window. Yeah, I mean it, that's the signature move, and it's. I mean, he just starts off with a fucking bang, dude. That that whole sequence, like when that fucking door kicks in, you see that fucking hatchet and the fucking first like like cleaver hit. Mm-hmm. Holy, it still fucking gives me like chills because it's just so well executed. Mm-hmm. And yes, Argento is known for those kills, and obviously that. But I feel like. They're incredible, but they also put an unfair weight on it where people would just watch the movie for that, where it's like, the other thing I always hate is, and I used to be guilty of this, of this whole Argento logic of like, oh, these movies, you know, they don't make sense, or the plots, all oh, bullshit. This one certainly does. Yeah, well, most of them I, do. I, I think that, that, I mean, Suspiria, once you, once you know what it is, and it's the witches and all that stuff, but I mean, it's a pretty, it's pretty fucking out there if you're just... Stone of the Bone. Well, yeah. And watching it for how crazy it is, you well, know? I, I think a lot of people choose to watch these movies as, like, nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of unfair. Because I feel like, I, you know, when you watch these movies, like, they have intricate plots. Mm-hmm. It's just people, you know, things can get lost in translation because, you know, there's dub versions. There's Italian versions. I mean, and- this one in particular... I mean, literally, the like not only does it show you at the end what it was, but I mean, they literally like it. It's a, even maybe I could argue a little too heavy-handed. We'll get there. Yeah, but it, this is not a nonsensical, dreamlike film, as some people say it is. I mean, there's just a very straightforward plot that, again, just literally just the end tells you what. Yeah. Just in case you missed it, boom. It, it, you know, a lot of that I feel like it's the Columbo ending, and I, when I show a lizard and women's skin, I know we're getting a little off topic here. Like it definitely has a Columbo ending that kind of ties it up neatly. Mm-hmm. Some people fucking hate it. It's like, why does the cop explain everything? It's like, you know, it's it's there. It's a narrative device, you know. And sometimes it is heavy handed, but it's like when you're watching something that's like visually stunning and all that you sometimes get lost. So maybe like that little heavy handed recap is just like, here's why this is what you've been watching. This kind of explains it. Is it good or bad? I don't know. It's I made d- for people that, that watch a movie while they're also on their phone. Well, <laughs> at the end, they just tell you, well, you, the, the other thing I keep in mind is the way Italians screen films is they usually have built in intermissions. Like a couple of the Italian prints I've shown, they have, intermissions and i'm talking for like movies that are 90 minutes long okay like they'll have an intermission so people can go smoke buy food or whatever and like apparently like there's a book i read and i can't remember the title it's one of those like you know giallo theme books and it's talking about like the way these movies are digest or like how movies are digested in italy especially more the pop culture or you, you know the popular heart you know you know basically the genre stuff 
is that like people would kind of tune out while it's on and then like they get really into when the sex and violence hit. Okay. So I think it's a lot of it's naturally designed that way, but it's also like, you know, also like these movies are asking a little more than some people are prepared for. Like pay the fuck attention. And like, obviously you can get high and watch deep red or Suspiria and just have a, you know, Whoa, man, that's fucking cool. That that mm-hmm. that shit's fucking crazy. I will say, it not only, although it does spell it out for you at the end, it it, you know, it's pay attention to it. Please pay attention to it. It's the whole thing is fucking amazing. Exactly. You know? So yeah, I was gonna say like you know when I first saw this, I didn't see it until it hit like uh, reissue VHS or DVD when Anchor Bay was putting out these Argento mm-hmm. movies. For some reason, I just never had Deep Red, and the first time I saw it was Argento's director's cut, or, like, the full version, which had, like, some of it was in Italian, some of it was in English, because, like, there were scenes that were never released in the States, or mm-hmm. in English-speaking language countries, and the version we watched was what they call the international version, which runs an hour 40, where as opposed to the... The guy had just read that, um, that, that, that that is also, that is actually the original theatrical version. That the shorter version, which yeah. is what we watched, is the theatrical version. Yeah. So it's it may be called the international version, but it's just I mean to me it just sounds like it's the fucking version. It's it's know? a version everyone most people saw. I don't know if in Italy they saw the full two hour one or what. It might have, but like the the difference between the two cuts is like most of it's like more on the relationship of Daria Nicolata's character and um David Hemming's character, which I think is great stuff. There's comedy, there's more jokes, you can see the relationship kind of building, there's character development, mm-hmm. and I think all that stuff's good, but you know, I also kinda like the international version. I think they they both have their own merit, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. But, you know, I like I was saying, just thinking back when I first saw this, like I I saw the way I saw Argento movies. I saw Suspiria first because that was it was easier to see, and then I had a uh, Bruce Holacek had loaned me his bootleg copy of Tenebrae, which we'll talk more about later. It was like a it was a VHS dupe off of a Japanese laserdisc about three generations down. So very fucking unwatchable now yeah. that I think about it. But <laughs> hey, it's you could the red was still red, but like yeah, you know, seeing Deep Red, it was like I. I loved it, but it, this was the one that I grew to appreciate more with each viewing because mm-hmm. it's just like there's so much in it, and especially like after that kind of like you know Columbo or whatever. Let's explain the plot for all you who weren't paying attention. Like that last few moments, which we'll talk about when we get there, is just like there's something about it. Just I think it's just like I think it's pure magic how it fucking plays out. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should talk about like how did Deep Red come about? Argento. You know, he started as a screenwriter. He wrote a couple things. He's probably best known for being one of the writers with Bernardo Berlucci on Sergio Leone's um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm-hmm. So, I I just want to bring this up because, like, I got my letterbox stats. So, the number one director I watched last year was Argento. And the number one actor I watched was Charles Bronson. And I was like, yo, where's that Argento Bronson movie? And someone's like, oh, well, kind of happened in Once Upon a Time in the West. It's like... Yeah, I guess, but okay. I want I want Bronson in a giallo, mm-hmm. although he just probably shoot the Black Glove Killer. Yeah, and have some fucking line. I, I should have prepared like a good Bronson <laughs> one liner, but I don't have it. But anyway, so Argento started out. He made three movies in a row, three gialli that really kickstarted the popularity of the genre. Now, 
a lot of people incorrectly say like John, you know, he, you know, really, you know, early Gialli, but like there's a ton of stuff that came before like Bird with the Crystal Plumage. You had, you know, the two Babas, you know, Girl Who Knew Too Much with John Saxton, as well as, you know, Blood and Black Lace, which is where you get your Black Love Killer mm-hmm. out in the forefront. But then you had a lot of the stuff like those early Umberto Lindsay stuff, like Orgasmo was mm-hmm. like 68, just right around there, Sweet Body of Deborah, like things like that. They were more like, more the erotic thriller, or like those kind of gialli yeah. were there. But, you know... Once Argento put on those black gloves, and he literally put on those black gloves because he played the black glove killer, I think, all the way through maybe opera. And then, like, I think with Trauma, he let Tom Savini do it. Right on. I, I love I love that fact so much. I'm, I'm And I'm assuming that's just a, uh, you know, it was just a way to save time, save money, no, that sort I, of thing. But but it, maybe it's something he eventually no, it, enjoyed and, and he, made it a point to to he, do he made it a point because he felt like he it was waves directing because he knew mm. what he wanted to do and how the hands should move and all maybe that. it's a little uh you know how you always see hitchcock in one of his movies it's maybe a little nod to that sort of thing i think it's a little bit of that and i think it's also just a little bit like no one's going to do it better than me yeah like i under i understand what i wrote i understand what i see in my head and the only way to get what i see in my head is use my own fucking hands yeah. but I, I that's a really i think it's one of the coolest things because like you know it takes directing to another level because, like, you you know, he, I think he might have put on the trench coats and, like, you know, fedora and the raincoats and whatever in some of those shots. But I think, like, you know, primarily when you see Black Love Hands in any of those films, it's him. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, literally hands-on for him. But it's funny when, you know, even in this this film in particular, you know, who the who the killer ends up being... I don't know if we should, if I should say this now, but you know, it's it's someone with a, a very different body type than his. Oh yeah, you know, so it's just like it's funny that he does that at every time, no matter like it. it no matter whether, who whether the killer matches, is, yeah, you know? exactly. Um, I love it. I it, mean, it's great because it's just like it kind of makes it all uniform, mm-hmm. and then when the killer's reviewed, it's not all yeah. <laughs> uniform. Yeah, yeah. So getting back, he had done, you know. Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat Nine Tails, and Four Flies of Gray Velvet all in a row. I think he had different cinematographers for each one, but he had Enya McConey did the scores for all three, and then they had a falling out at the end of Four Flies where they didn't work together again until, like, maybe Stendhal Syndrome. Okay. Like, it was a long, kind of, like, weird, I don't want to say feud, but, like, personal differences because I think Argento's musical taste was changing and Morricone was doing a lot of weird progressive stuff, but, like, I think... That's when Argento was feeling like, I want more. I think he was looking for Goblin before he knew what Goblin was. If that makes sense. I like, I like to think that they were act- actively feuding. A eh, little bit. <laughs> you know, it, it, if you read enough interviews with like, you know, like a lot of the Italian like filmmakers, composers, like that kind of stuff, they all talk shit about each other. There's a great book called Spaghetti Nightmares where you, if you just want to see everyone fucking talk shit. If I see you again, Argento, it's on site, bro. Yeah, well... <laughs> Dario was the only one who kind of, like, withheld shit-talking. You know, like, they would bring up, like, you know, Fulci said you're an asshole kind of thing. And he'd be like, I don't really know him. I just, I like his films. Okay. Like, he would, he'd be pleasant where everyone else would be like, yo, fuck Argento. <laughs> it's like some fucking, like, you know, it's like being the, you know, the number one rapper. Yeah. Everyone's fucking trying to battle you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's pretty much what it was to some extent. He's like, you don't even have a big enough audience to talk to me. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, he, you know, he was one of the few filmmakers that was kind of considered a rock star in Italy. Okay. Like, all those other guys were kind of like always because of the way they came up. Because, you know, Argento had advantages because I don't want to say his family came from money, but like, he didn't do the apprenticeships and that kind of stuff like, you know, Fulci or Ruggiero Diodato or even Sergio Martino. All those guys started as like assistant directors and worked their way up. Okay. Whereas Argento just got like, dropped some screenplays, fucking directed a movie. Okay. Different world, you know? But anyway, he finished his Animal Trilogy and like, at that time, like, everyone, like the Giallo, Giallo and Gialli films were really, really popping in Italy and everyone was fucking making them. He's like, you know, I'm done. And, and were these, uh, were, was that trilogy, was that something that had made its way to the U.S. at the time? Uh, Bird definitely, I think Bird and Cato, actually all three of them had, because okay. like Paramount Pictures had put out Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and like, I think Bird did really well, I don't know about Cato Nine Tales, I, I think, you know, I think they all had very degrees of success, but Bird was a pretty big picture here, you know? Okay. So, and that's... The other thing Argento kind of was chasing a lot more than the other filmmakers, like he was getting, you know, respectable hits in the U.S. Okay. And like, and I think at the end of those movies, and because there were so many other thrillers coming out, he's like, I'm done with the genre. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, genre was burning out and like at that point, like 72, 73, when like most of those guys who were like, you know, Martino or Bernard Lindsay were moving over to like Eurocrime stuff. So Argento, you know, decides to do something a little artsier. He does the five days where it's like it's a period piece, it's a comedy, it's a drama. And Severed Films just put out an incredible 4K Blu-ray release of it. It's like the first like legit U.S. release of it. And it's an interesting movie. How, I don't, how does that comedy translate? Is it something that... It's very, very Italian-centric. Yeah. It would not translate to a like American audience. Mm -hmm. But or it could have. Like it how about at the time versus today? Well, it it might play better today. Okay. It but here's the thing: it also tanked in Italy. Mm -hmm. It got no U.S. release, and it did it bombed at Italy. So, what happens when a filmmaker has a flop for the first time, and they're scrambling? <clears throat> you either double down, do something really fucking weird, yeah, or you go get a hit, yeah, yeah. And Argento was like. I need a hit. I need a comeback. And he went back to the thriller. Okay. So that's kind of where Deep Red came about. It's like, okay, you know, I stepped out. Maybe I should step back in. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but it's like, you know, you're rebuilding your ego and like your confidence and all that. It's like, I tried something different. It kind of was a failure. I don't think the movie itself is a failure, but like financial box office wise, it didn't do very well. So it's like, I have something to prove. And I think he was also tired of like everyone else, like continue making thrillers and all that. And it's like, you know what? I'm the fucking, I'm the fucking, you know, OG or whatever he thought mm -hmm. he was. Like, I'm going to show you how it's fucking really done. And that's how deep red came out. Cause I feel like in a lot of ways, it is the ultimate giallo film. So let's talk about some things about the movie. Like obviously, and Argento directs the shit out of this movie. Yes. It's like stylized to like, man, the fucking set piece. Every it's crazy as hell. Like it looks, every shot is fucking perfect and amazing. Yeah. It when it opens in when it opens at the psychic yeah conference, it's just this huge theater. It's all red. Yeah. Many things in this film are red, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it's just they found I don't know who the location guy was. Yeah. You know, but goddamn that like the when it's him and when it's David Hemmings and Carlo out out front of that theater and there's that giant fucking statue, it's like a guy holding a, a snake or something. Like, holy fuck, man. Where do you where do you find this shit? In Italy, man. It's the coolest looking movie of all time. Like it the movie just looks fucking great. Like that's the other thing I like about these films, especially in the seventies like Italian stuff. It's like I mean, I don't know how much of his production design or just, like, fucking locations where, like, this is just how fucking people lived. Yeah, it's just what it looks like there. And it's like... You just I go anywhere and shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they're also doing things like he's staging, recreating paintings in the background. Oh, right, dude. Holy fuck. Like, the amount... those All the different scenes where it's just, like, actors just not moving. Mm-hmm. It just looks like a painting behind them. Yeah. because fucking it, incredible. Because he's literally, him and Luigi Cavella are like fucking restaging paintings. Mm-hmm. And that's someone I want to talk about is like, Cavella's cinematography and camera work is second to none in this movie. Like, you know, they do, him and Argento do crazy shit. Like, they're going through curtains. Like, when they go in oh. through David Hen, like that opening, or like when they're going, the psychic scene, they go through a fucking curtain. Right. It goes up and through the window. Yeah, when it does that too, like when it, when David Hemmings in there like working on the piano yeah, and yeah. like the killers trying to come and kill him, the fucking camera goes through the window and it it happens a few times in the movie and it's just like it's not realistic but it's a great stylistic point. But like, there's even that in like the fucking like micro like lens cinema where they're like shooting like the fucking like kids toys like and you see the mm-hmm. gi- the giant black glove killer hand moving stuff around. And, like, the way it pans around, like, the knives and shit. Maybe I think that maybe that was all. He had that puppet. Yeah. <laughs> he had that fucking puppet that comes in the room. Yeah. And it's just like, how do we justify? Yeah. <laughs> how just... do we justify using this? All right, we'll we'll have the, you know, we'll have all the little toys laid out. We'll I mean. Keep cutting to that. I mean, it also goes back to, like, the the real opening, which is during the credits where you cut to, like, you know spoil it it's like carlo and his mom although you mm-hmm. see young young carlo at christmas because we did talk about this as a christmas oh, right. movie yeah and just like you know it's like is it a kid trapped in adolescence as the killer mm-hmm. or you know it turns out to be the mom who's like trying to take care of the kid whatever yeah. i mean there's just so many incredible shots so many like you know there's zoom ins like when the killer's hiding in the closet and you just see that fucking eyeball mm-hmm. moving that's fucking, it's incredible. Just so many little things. And when the killer pops up and hits that lady with a flashlight and like the, you know, I mean, I guess we can talk about those fucking murder set pieces. Cause like the Olga, the psychic one is a fucking incredible. Yeah. Like I, again, I've seen the movie fucking hundreds of times at this point. That first fucking hatchet hit will always give me chills. Mm-hmm. You see it from the ground, but you see it happening yeah. in the window. It's from uh, yeah, David Hubbing's point of view down yeah. there with when she's like against the glass and she breaks through yeah i know it's a dummy or whatever but still it's fucking great and it's something else i want to bring up like you know camera work and cinematography is second none but franco fredicelli's editing is fucking phenomenal because they do mm-hmm. little stuff in there like you know there's a little like kind of secret cuts and like you know the way they like jump in the close-up and jump out and things mm-hmm. like that it's just fuck some of, some of it is just like way way artsier than i ever remembered it being like it, it is also an art film not only is it a thriller or a, or a horror film but it's yeah the ca- the camera work it's so it's it, it it's an art film yeah it's innovative and it's just mm-hmm. like it 
it's dynamic in a way that like a lot of films, like even standard like films, weren't. It's just like it's so it's so well constructed, and it doesn't feel constructed. It feels natural, but like everything in it is just like there's just these little things that happen throughout the whole fucking movie. It's fucking great. One of the things that's big in this movie, and that was Bernardo and um, Argento talked about when writing the script, is like they wanted all the deaths to be painful. When they take that one dude with the long hair with the, during the creepy puppet scene, and he's getting his fucking teeth bashed against fucking corners and edges and oh, all yeah. that. Dude, like putting that woman in the fucking hot water getting scalded. Oh, that's so fucking brutal. Like Carlo's death when he's Carlo, getting dragged yeah. around on the street and gets his fucking head ran over. All of them are, are particularly mean. They really yeah. are. Oh, it, it's a mean fucking movie. The rest of it's so beautiful. It's so great. It's so well plotted. They're like, when it gets to those kills and it's really fucking really nasty. Yeah, it's it's well earned, which kind of brings up to the next thing, which is that fucking goblin score. Yeah. I know there's the jazz stuff and the little like, like mm-hmm. the, the fucking like repeat children's song motif, but like just as iconic as the Suspiria soundtrack, maybe even maybe better. I think it's better. I, I kind of stand by it. when you get past that main Suspiria theme. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's kind of like avant-garde noise, yeah. which, which is fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm not knocking it, but I think like there's some fucking hits in the fucking mm-hmm. like. But they both share that that childlike yeah. whispery kind of bullshit. You yeah. know what I mean? Which, <laughs> which is fucking creepy as hell, which is what makes them both creepy. I mean, you know, if you want to get real here, um, you know, the main goblin, deep red, profondo rosso theme, it's, it's tubular bells. It's a, what? Tubular, oh, it's tubular bells. bells. Yeah, okay. it, it's a variation mm-hmm. of it. But, you know, you know who else heard that fucking deep red score and was like, hmm, John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Because Halloween's a variation of the fucking deep wet red theme. Mm-hmm. And it's been confirmed, like, you know, Carpenter was friends with Argento. Deborah Hill, like, said one of the movies they watched a lot while working on Halloween was deep red mm-hmm. so you know think of the score think of the kill i mean halloween doesn't have like the stylized kills or the bloodletting but like you know there's a they share a kind of a musical kinmanship you know but like yeah that goblin score like especially like that little like kind of near jazzy prog like during a lot of the murders where the fucking piano kicks in that seminary he's playing like <clears throat> Just imagine when that fucking puppet kicks in the door and fucking that chop it in the fucking head like that. That piece of music is fucking great. Just like anxiety inducing yeah. fucking. But it's like it's like it's like music that's like high energy. It's like dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. and then you hear those like piano key taps and stuff like that. It's just so well placed. Totally. And like you know, a few of those cues get re- you know get replayed a few times, but like it never gets old. Another thing I really love in this movie is David Hemmings and Daria Nicolata's relationship stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just genuinely playful and, like, you know, she fucks with him and, like, you know, it's a really nice dynamic. It's uh, something that's that's always common with her look is that she always has that, like, thick um, eyeliner, mm-hmm. you know? And then uh, and it keeps showing those, like, you mentioned earlier, the eye in the closet. Yeah. I, I think that's like a it's a good red herring yeah i think of that as a misdirection i don't know if it's maybe i'm you know it it definitely is it's like because like you know they set up to be carlo the bee killer and like carlo's kind of an interesting character because like you know yeah there's um he ends up he's has a trans you know girlfriend or whatever and 
Ar- this wasn't the first time Argento used trans people movie. There's there's like a trans like kind of nightclub thing in like Bird with Crystal Plumage, and there we'll talk a little bit more about this in Tenebrae. Like Carlo's like self hating gay, but like his lover is a kind normal person. You know, it's like it's it's a weird dynamic, but like you know, there's a there's a humanist thing to these characters. Like they feel like people. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like caricatures. Like if you watch a slasher movie all these people would be fucking paper thin and just like, cool, they fucking died. Like, even when Carlo dies, it's fucking painful. Mm-hmm. And you still feel some for him, especially when the ending actually rolls out in the movie. Yep. Which, you know what? Let's talk about the ending because... Well, actually, we to talk about the ending, we have to talk about what happens a little early in the movie. So it's Carlo's mom is the killer. Mm-hmm. And they introduce her in a way where she's like, oh, I'm just a, you know, fucking, you know... A, a, you know a woman that's like kind of a little flighty or like a little loopy or something like mm-hmm. that and not nah, dog yeah. she's fucking cold blooded as fuck yeah. and one of the great things in deep red after olga's murder and david hemmings goes into her apartment is like there's a shot and you see it we paused it because i want you to see it mm-hmm. where the you know carlo's mom is against the wall and you see a reflection in the mirror which is what the painting is that david hemming's character tries to remember the whole movie until he realizes like it's not a painting it was someone standing in the mirror right so he fucking shows you the killer like yeah and so at the end that's the thing that he he literally tells you i was standing here and i was looking in this mirror and this is what i saw yeah you know and and spells the whole thing out for you which is which is great but Again, if you're if you you know if you're looking for it, you're not really going to see it necessarily. No. if you're not looking for it at the beginning. It's, I mean, it's very quick. It's, I mean, it, it took me a few times to realize like you see her. Mm-hmm. Like first couple times watching, never noticed it. But then like when you know that's what he sees, you're like I wonder, goddamn, she's just oh, it is just right there, right, right plain there, sight, totally in plain sight. And the way it just all plays off is fucking incredible. And it you know this kind of goes back to um, you know, blow up. I don't remember. Did I say blow out or blow up earlier? When I was talking about it. Antonio. I think you said blow up. Yeah, uh, whatever. I made a mistake. If I did, anyway, <laughs> it's it's very there's, easy. There's a reason why blowout is called blowout because it was inspired <laughs> by blow up. So, yeah, you know, it it happens. But you know, that's kind of. I think that was part of David Hemmings' casting, obviously cashing in on mm-hmm. blow up. But he definitely has a a similar process like except he's not blowing up a fucking photo to like giant sides to try to solve a murder he's just trying to like dissect a memory mm-hmm. and it's just really clever how he does it now the thing about deep red that like always gets me and why i rank it is very high i like it it's a toss-up between tenebrae and this which one is my favorite mm-hmm. and I, I can flip pretty quickly on it the ending when like Hemmings is fighting Carlo's mom. Mm-hmm. And, like, she takes that... She stabs him and takes that swing, and she gets her necklace called in the fucking elevator. Mm-hmm. Like, that whole that whole sequence is so anxiety, because it's like he has a split second to decide, like, do I live or die? Mm-hmm. I mean, does he have to kill her? Yeah. I think so. I, I To me, I, I what I thought was an, an even more powerful scene was just him going to the to Carlos childhood home. Oh, that and, shit. And, and cl- scaling the wall and literally breaking through a hole in the wall and, and like knowing, and then breaking in another hole in the wall. Yeah. You know, he finds like the painting. Yeah. And then breaks through it to find the room where 
the dad is dead still oh, like yeah. in the chair dead in the room like he finds like the opening scene of the film he goes and finds that where they basically just like sealed it off yeah you know like it never existed right I mean, like, when he goes and sees, like, the guy that's the caretaker and his little daughter, who's, like, a fucking psychopath in the making. Oh, right. Well, wasn't she the, uh, she was the girl from, um... Um, Who Saw Her Die, yeah. The the little red-headed girl at the beginning that that dies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, she's in a ton of, like, you know, that, like, a Euro stuff, like, Italian stuff, and, like... She is fucking creepy, and she's also got Carlo's childhood drawings where he's, like, drawing out his fucking trauma. Yeah. Like, he fucking drew that on the wall, so where David Hemmings finds and stuff. There's so many little cool things in it, and, like, if you're not paying attention, it's like, well, this is just, you you know, stylized or, you know, goofy stuff. It's like, dude, fuck that. Mm -hmm. It's it's fucking incredible how everything is set up, everything is set up and pays out, pays off, you Mm -hmm. know? And, and like, it, and it is super stylized. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, like you know, that scene where David Hemmings is breaking through walls and fucking chipping off paint and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it could be very mundane, but you put that goblin score behind it, it yeah. becomes something else. Oh yeah, there's right. like there's urgency to it. Totally, but it, but it, uh, but I appreciate it does. It kind of takes him a little while. It's like he's breaking through that wall in real fucking time. Yeah, like he's literally breaking through the wall. Yeah. And so it takes a while. The goblin music kicks in and you're just along for the ride. Okay. Yeah. Let's I mean, fucking go. Because if, if you don't have the goblin music, it plays completely different. It could be a fucking tedious, like, God damn it. Oh, man. Oh, God. We, well, you have to make that now. You have to make it where it's like, you know, where it's it's like the David Bowie, Mick Jagger, where like you can't hear the music and it's just their shoes squeaking, yeah. where it's just him breaking through the wall and you just hear him doing the wall. Yeah. You know, no goblin at all. Like you have to make that exist, or or like make the sound re- just ridiculous, like something over the top. Yeah, or some yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like it plays completely different without the music. Yeah, and indeed. I don't know, man. We have to find out and just make it ourselves. We we might have to do that. But like, there's just something about this movie. Like you know, as the whole elevator sequence when like you know Carlo's mom gets decapitated because her necklace gets caught in and like you have that pool of blood and you see David Hemmings like reflection in it when like the end credits hit like you've been watching Deep Red it's so sick yeah it's just and the you know the main like goblin theme kicks up the Profondo Rosso song it's it's so fucking classy yeah like, it's like I and I it doesn't make me go like man I wish all fucking movies did that I'm just really glad this one did oh yeah it's like it's the perfect horror movie ending. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect kind of art house ending. Mm-hmm. Just like, cause like that whole fight sequence between Carlos mom and David Hemmings is just like, it's so frenetic. And it's just like, there's like anxiety to it. Like there's a lot of anxiety inducing things because like, you know, there, even though I've seen it a billion times at this point, there's always a part of me that thinks like, Oh, she's going to fucking like kill David Hemmings character. Mm-hmm. Like no shit. And, like, I know how it ends, but, like, just the way it plays out is just, like... Maybe this time. Maybe this time. <laughs> I, I don't know. But it's just, like, maybe it's, like, it's been a Mandela effect. And I just remember it wrong. And, like, every time I watch it, it's, like, I'm, like, oh, shit. This is how it plays out. But, like, it's kind of a perfect ending. It's, like, it really sticks the landing. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the camera stays on on David Hemmings. And, and it's he's not moving much, but it's just there, like, on him. And it's the reflection in the blood. And it, it's a little while before it actually pauses. Yeah, I, I I love it so much. That 
and when Anchor Bay put that out on DVD and like the reissued VHS for the first time, there was a they actually paused on the shot and had the credits roll over like that, and people complained. Hell yeah, as so, they should, as they should. So like you know, just seeing that little bit of mo- movement from him, like in the background, because it's like it looks like a you know still frame, but like he's there, and then it just doesn't pause until like the very end. I don't know, man. Final thoughts on Deep Red. It's got to be my favorite Argento, I think, at this point. I've always loved Tenebrae, but now that I've had a, a closer look, uh, you know what? Final, My final thought is I, I forgot to mention, uh, I think the moment the moment that I really realized that this was, that it had so many comedic moments, I told you, when when he gets in uh, Daria Nicolata's car and, like, the seat falls down and then the fucking... Uh, you know, the visor keeps like flapping around and shit. I was making notes when I was watching it alone and I'm like, her car's fucked up. (laughs) 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 But, but but when I finally watched it with you and then I started to realize like, wait a second, these are actually like supposed to be comedic moments. And it wasn't just like her car's fucked up. (laughs) How insane that is. How insane that is. Uh, I mean, I guess it's like, man, I, I, I don't know. Is it obvious? Anyway, I, was that obvious, or was I just really fucking stoned? I, I all, think I think all of the above. I you know I think you're not the only one who's just like because you're not looking for humor. I man. missed it completely. It went over my head and entirely. It, and it's broad humor, and it's like it's not just like you know some slick like like you know built in inside joke. It's like fucking pretty on like border. I mean, it borderline slapstick. Yeah, it's goofy as hell. I mean, there's other things, the arm wrestling match between them, like there's mm-hmm. there's all kinds of fucking just He was having fun. Yeah. It's it the one thing speaking of Daria is like the way he frames her, the way he shoots her in the movie, it's like you can tell Daria was in love with her in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it shows like there's little moments like her like twirling the cigarette between her fingers and like just I mean, you know, it's not getting cats thrown at her. Yeah, I mean We'll talk about that deterioration of a relationship on camera when we get to Tenebrae because, like, there's some shit going down. But, yeah, I mean, in that movie, it's just, like, you can tell he's in love with her. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's really beautiful. And, like, you know, it lets her and David Hemmings play together. And, like, just, you know, all the performances are great. Like, the movie's just fucking, it's just fucking great. Like, Anyone who's like, well, I don't know, it's like, you're a fucking asshole. The movie's great. <laughs> like, there's, I, you know, I, I on Letterboxd, I give a lot of Giallo films five stars for various reasons, degree. And I will stand by, this is a five-star film, regardless of genre or whatever, because it, it does so much. It's so fucking well-made. And the thing is, like, so many people have, like, tried to, like, touch great, like, try to make something as good or even in the same ballpark of this, and never got close. Like, this is light years ahead of, like, so many, you know, horror films and all that. Because, like, you know, because everyone will talk about, like, oh, this horror movie's a class, this and that. It's like, then most of them will never touch this movie. Because it's just, like, you're... It's made by a filmmaker that's coming off, like, a personal failure when they try to, like, move on from the genre that they felt like they were done with. And... (laughs) you know, revitalize their career. Like, Deep Red, you know, played the States as the Hatcher murders and across across the country. A lot of people saw it. And it was a hit. And it kind of enabled him to do Suspiria next. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, it gave him, like, being artistically free. 
and just like going into the genre and just like, you know, the camera moves, the murder set pieces, all that stuff. It's like, you know, I, I can say like he took his first three movies and kind of like put them in a blender and poured out a deep red. But I also think it's like also completely different from all three of those movies. They might share some signature stuff because of like the genre, but like, you know, it's like. I'm curious if this one had much of a life in the 80s. Like, did did it come out on VHS in the U.S.? Did it get floated around much in, in that regard? It, it definitely probably, like, there was probably Hatchet Murders VHS. or It's Deep a terrible Red. name, by the way. Like, it, coming to the U.S. is Hatchet Murder. Deep I, Red is way fucking cooler. Well, you, they're just capitalizing because they're lazy. Because mm. just the fucking first murder is a hatchet. And they're the dripping, fucking... dripping Deep Red is even cooler. Yeah, Dripping Deep Red. So, oh. Deep Red Rap, we have to talk Oh, about yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> obviously, wasn't part of this, but, like, years later when Claudio Seminetti did his Seminetti horror project where he played Goblin Hits and decided that, you know what the world needs? A rap version of the Deep Red theme. Deep Red, the color of the blood that's dripping All over the place and people die Children cry What's happened to the human race? We've got to stop it Cause the beat just coming on Let the music flow in your brain and take it I'm big it all over, deep red, you're dead. He's right. He's he was absolutely fucking right. It's you know, it's one of those weird things that I love showing to people still, because like when I saw it, like I, I thought everyone knew there was a fucking deep red rap. But, like, to this day, there's a lot of people like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, it's on YouTube. Seminetti's fucking proud of it because he's got the fucking video clip on YouTube. Hell, yeah. Like, the fucking one dude that's the DJ with one turntable, like, fucking cutting, man. Shit goes hard. So sick. Look it up. Dr. Felix has fucking bars, son. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think his name's Dr. Felix. It's something fucking ridiculous like that. But, yeah, you know, that's that's Deep Red's legacy. Fantastic fucking movie. Ridiculous rap song. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, we're going to get very shadowy here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. You have killed And you will kill again. You're getting closer and closer. To the most unnatural kind of death. Beyond shock. What was that? Beyond horror into total terror. Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Deep red. Conjecture is that an act of bloodshed was once committed in that house. What is it? Didn't you hear that? No, what was it? I don't know. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, death is running with you. Deep 
it'll put you into deep shock. Welcome back. We've been talking about a couple of Dario Argento films here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And up next, we're going to talk about the next Giallo film he made after Deep Red. You might be wondering, we're not talking about Suspiria. We're not talking about Inferno. And you know why? Because neither of those films are fucking Giallos. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of people who are like, Suspiria's my favorite Giallo. If it's your favorite Giallo, you don't like Giallo films. You're just a fucking asshole. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just making a point here that I don't know. It you know Well then so uh what are what are your what are your signifiers here though? Like what are what are the main ingredients that, that are, make a Giallo or or what makes them not a Giallo? I, I think what takes both of these, I think there's a better case of making like, like do, do the do does uh Suspiria or Inferno have Dario Argento's black gloves? They don't have black gloves, but there's definitely some mutant witchy hands in there that are his. Okay, and but, obviously there's murder set pieces and all do, that. Do the black gloves make it particularly make it a giallo? No, what what I think separates these films is that they're they're basically they're supernatural movies. They're mm-hmm. movies about witchcraft. It's okay. like you know, I. It's like if you say Suspiria is a giallo, is the beyond a giallo? Right. Is any you know there is a certain segment of people that will say any fucking Italian horror right. movie it is a giallo. It yeah. doesn't just mean Italian horror. No, it's like it's a murder mystery. It's it's very pulpy. It's like you know there's things that push the limits, like all the colors are dark, which some people like is a giallo or not. But I think those are based in a form of reality. Mm-hmm. And there's elements to connect them where I think Suspiria and Inferno, because they get very supernatural and get stylized in a different kind of way, takes them out of the genre. Okay. It's like, you know, you wouldn't say, like I said, you wouldn't call it beyond a giallo. Right. It's just, they just aren't. And, you know, people will say, well, this and that. It's just, you know, outside of the fucking double murder at the beginning of Suspiria, it doesn't get very giallo-like. It's just whatever. It's what it is. But, you know, after Deep Red, he took a little detour into witchcraft and occultism and came right back with 1982's Tenebrae, which was, you know, also released as Unsane in a very butchered version in the United States market. Okay. Like, all the gore, all that stuff was cut out. It's, like, incomprehensible. All the things people accuse Argento films of being of, like, nonsensical and that... You want to see something nonsensical? Watch the Unsane cut of Tenebrae because it okay. makes no fucking sense. The only cool thing about Unsane is that the band named themselves after it. Right. It is It is a truly great title for a film and, and a band. Just but just that cut is fucking... shame. Yeah, that cut fucking sucks shit. Um, the film stars Anthony Fanchosa, who was in things like Death Wish 2, Facing the Crowd, City Hall... Darry Nicolata returns. Also got John Saxon, who was in the very first Giallo film, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, directed by Mario Bava. You also see Saxon in playing a cop in a lot of movies, Black Christmas, Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. Nightmare Beach. Like, you know, Saxon's had a he's had a good career. Yep. Ton of stuff. I mean, everyone knows and loves John Saxon. Also has Giuliano Gemma, who was in a ton of spaghetti westerns, as well as The Leopard. Christian Borromeo, who was in House on the Edge of the Park, as well as Murder Rock. John Steiner, who was a who passed away last year, who was selling real estate in Los Angeles, but mm-hmm. he was also in a ton of movies like Mario Bava Shock, also with Darry Nicolata, Caligula, Cut and Run, all kinds of stuff. 
Veronica Laro, who's best known for getting her arm chopped off in the movie and spraying blood all against the fucking white wall, and trans actor Eva Robbins. And the only reason I mention that is because it's, you know, kind of a, it's it's kind of important because she plays just a woman. Mm-hmm. And she was just very famous as a trans porn star at the time. And, you know, we talked about a little bit in Deep Red, like there's a trans relationship, there's like a trans club in Burger Crystal Plumage. And it's interesting that Argento hired her for this movie and just just because, you know. There's there's no like exploitation or like fetishism. It's just she's just in it. Right. Which I think is a really interesting choice to make. Mm-hmm. Like in the best way possible. And, you know, she appears in all those flashbacks, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The screenplay and story were written by Dario Argento, and it was based on kind of something that happened to him. I think he was in Santa Monica here, and obsessed fans started stalking him and leaving him, like, notes that started as, you know, kind of friendly to, like, I'm going to fucking kill you mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So he, that was kind of the genesis of what went into Tenebrae. Once again, Franco Fredicelli was the editor. Giuseppe Bassan was the production designer. It was, again, produced by Argento's father, Salvador, who passed away, I think, after this movie was completed, and his brother, Claudio. The cinematographer on this film is Luciano Tavoli, who is probably most famously known for shooting Suspiria, Dario mm-hmm. Argento's Suspiria, obviously, but he also shot Antonioni's The Passenger, and you know, had a bit of a stateside career because he shot Barbara Schroeder's Single White Female. Famously, there's a scene with Bridget Fonda. She's all tied up, and Barbara had said something like, oh, the lighting reminds me of Suspiria, and Bridget Fonda is a huge Argento fan. She's like, why Suspiria? He's like, well, it's because Luciano was the, the DP of Suspiria, and Bridget Fonda apparently made herself get untied so she could talk to him about Suspiria before they went on and product, you know, like shooting. <laughs> awesome. I mean, that's pretty fucking cool. Uh, the score was once again performed by Goblin, sort of. Well, three members of Goblin and Drum Machine, and due to some weird contractual obligation, couldn't be called Goblin. Which is weird, because there's soundtracks to like Blue Omega, aka um, Beyond the Darkness, and Contamination, which had like a Goblin member in it that got to be called Goblin. But when you have three founding members of Goblin can't call that shit goblin yeah so they went by the name seminetti ronte and pignatelli which is for keyboard and synth player claudio seminetti guitar player massimo ronte and bass player fabio pignatelli and it should be noted that argento's assistant directors normally don't mention assistant directors but because of who these two guys are are obviously worth noting very high level directors in their own right his first AD was Lamberto Bava, who, son of Mario Bava. He was also, I think, the first AD on Inferno, and I think he was the one who kind of oversaw that underwater sequence in Inferno. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also worked with his dad, because Mario did a lot of special effects shots okay. in Inferno. And Michele Sove was the second unit director. He went on to direct, you know, Stage Fright, and then the church and the sect for Argento, as well as Della Morte Della Moore. Mm-hmm. should also mention Lamberto did Demons 1 and 2 for Argento. And for those of you who haven't seen Tenebrae, which kind of probably isn't a good idea because we're going to be talking a lot of spoilers in this, an American writer in Rome is stalked and harassed by a serial killer who is murdering everyone associated with the work of his latest book. Pretty simple. All right, so do you remember the first time you saw Tenebrae? 
Yeah, I, I would say kind of in that same era that I saw Deep Red, like in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I think this one, this is definitely, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is one I got from you that you had dubbed it for me. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not sure about Deep Red. I may have just watched it with you, but this one in particular, I think it ended up on a, on a VHS tape that I could, I could watch over and over at home. Yeah, which is funny because I got my VHS copied off of Bruce Holacek, so imagine... It was how, how many generations like mm-hmm. down we you just were, another generation and this is off of the laser disc yeah it was originally off a of japanese laser disc because <clears> there's <throat> burden like japanese subtitles and mm-hmm. all that and then bruce's copy might have been a generation off of that and yeah then my the copy i made myself was off that and then yours is off that so you're probably looking at a fifth or sixth generation fucking dupe of it that had to look like absolute shit mm-hmm. but you know i this after Suspiria, I'm pretty sure this was the first Argento one to see because I, you know, read about it, heard about it, and I was like, I need to see this fucking movie. And like, you know, even though like aesthetically, there's things that happen in this movie that don't bode well if you're watching a VHS copy that's been duped like five or six uh, times. Absolutely, it looks yeah. fucking washed as shit, well, washed out as shit. And that's the thing. Uh, so let's start with that. Uh, this is a daytime horror movie, which you don't see a lot. No. I, I would say um, Tavoli and Argento decidedly made the anti-Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Because, which, which also, I'm saying that because that certainly doesn't play well on a multiple yeah. generation copied tape. And then it's all blown out, but it's daytime, so it's just white. It's just washed the fuck out. Yeah, cause it, it's a very bright movie, and it's, it is by choice mm-hmm. from both of them. And, like, it's kind of been, a, you know, a sticking point for some people, like, aesthetically. But I, you know, I kind of appreciate it a lot more now because it's, like, it's unique. It makes the red pop. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, the use of color is very different because the Suspiria is all candy-colored fucking, you know, Snow White mm-hmm. bullshit. And this is, like, the color counts. Like, you know, those shots of, like, the eyeball, like, with the red lighting, those red shoes, and, of course, all the blood. Mm-hmm. So... I guess we should talk about, like, how Tenebrae came about. So, Argento, following Deep Red, had his probably biggest success with Suspiria. That was, like, it was released by Fox, but not really. Fox created a sub-label because they're like, we're, you know, don't want to associate with horror movies kind of thing. Okay. But Suspiria was a big hit in the States, internationally. It's probably, to this day, his biggest hit. Mm Mm-hmm. So Argento had this trilogy in mind of the three mothers, so he wanted to continue and did Inferno. Inferno also came out through Fox. They put money into it, and you know personally, I like Inferno a little bit better than Suspiria. We won't get into that, but maybe for a future podcast. Yep. Inferno didn't do as well for a variety of reasons, and Argento's de- and I want to mention this. Um, there's a great book called Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds by Madeline Madong, who um. It's one of the quintessential texts on Argento, especially that point in his career. Cool. And she, I think in the book, and I'm trying to, I'm paraphrasing here because I didn't read it, and I'm pretty sure it's from here, that basically Argento's dad was like, stop messing around with that supernatural crap and get back to making thrillers. Cool. Like, that was pretty much it. And another thing McDong had mentioned in that is, like, the very first murder you see on screen is the girl that steals the book, the Tenebrae book, the book from the bookstore. Yeah. And she dies pretty violently. She's having pages shoved in her mouth because her throat cut, all that. Oh, yeah. She is played by an actor named Anna Peroni, who, if you see Inferno, she's set up to be the third mother, mother, the mother of tears. Okay. So 
symbolically, basically Argento is killing the mother of tears mm-hmm. and saying, we're wiping the slate clean. No yeah. more supernatural bullshit. Sick. Although when you get back to like phenomena, you definitely get some more supernatural yeah, right. bullshit. But yeah, like, yeah. but no, it was a symbolic thing. Just saying like, I ain't fucking around. And we're back to making just straight up thrillers. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing, you know, we can talk about this movie. This movie's pretty straight ahead. It's like there's some trickery in it. There's some misdirection and all kind of stuff. But like plot lies, again, something people accuse Argento of. It's like, oh, Argento logic and stuff like that. And again, I've been guilty of it too. It's pretty clear cut, cut what's happening. It's pretty fucking straight ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. There, there's the, uh, yeah, it's it's all there. It's just like Deep Red. It, it's all there. You just got to know or you got to be actually be paying attention. Exactly. So, again... Argento directs the shit out of this movie. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of stuff yeah, that, you know, there's all the murder set pieces, but there's a lot of moving camera. There's a lot of resequence, like that Luma Crane shot that starts at one end of the building, goes all the way around where the killer's breaking in. Oh, absolutely incredible. It's like, it's self-indulgent, but it's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's just because, like, he had the technology. It's like, let's do something. I mean, it does have a payoff. You go all the way around the house, you see through the window, and then at the very end is when you see the killer like prying open the break in. Yep. In fucking incredible stuff. And, you know, let's talk about, you know, the another thing in that scene. Remember, like they had that goblin score playing, and that before the first girl who takes off her shirt and gets her throat cut, she's like, turn it down. Yeah. And it turns out that the other girl that's living in that fucking house is listening to the fucking record. And when they pull the needle off, the fucking music stops. Oh, it's it's so perfect. It's so, so fucking well done. It like pulls you either into it or out of it. I don't know which one. You know what I mean? It just, it you're you're so engrossed in it and then the music stops and it makes you, it's it's startling. Yeah, because it, it I think it works incredibly well because you don't even think about it, it. It feels it feels like it just feels like music in the background of a scene and then when it you know, it's yeah. just like, Oh fuck. Yeah. It like like it it what it does is it makes it more immersive. You're you're that much more like you're there. Oh yeah. You know? But it's like, yeah, it's it's a fucking like it's a an incredible choice to make. Mm-hmm. And it I think they nail it. And, like, you know, everyone talks about that Suspiria double murder. I think this double murder mm-hmm. is better. Yeah. Like, although I still don't understand why that one girl's changing her shirt at any point. Especially when you hear, it's like, the whisper, filthy, slimy perverts. It's like, if I hear that, it's like, you know what? Change my shirt. Yeah. Unless she just thought it was, like, her, like, girlfriend, roommate, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, obviously it's not as flashy as the Suspiria one, but it's meaner. Because, like, she gets her throat cut, and, you know, like, that iconic shot of the shirt where the shirt hole rips open, mm-hmm. and there's that pause before the blood fucking spurts out. And her, like, hand hits some glass and breaks some other shit. And the other girl's coming down, like, the stairwell, and she's getting chased by the straight razor, gets her throat cut, and falls through the glass window. And it's beautifully staged, like, how the bodies are posed. I wonder if then the, uh, you know, the shirt, the shirt is just, uh, the shirt is what made the gag yeah. easier. So that's why she's taking off her shirt. It's I, just it, a, it, I mean, that's got to be what that is. But, it, but it's cool. It's great. It's cool. Is it realistic? Who the fuck knows? Yeah. I don't know. I've never been called a filthy, slimy pervert in a scary whisper voice. So I don't know how to react. I might fucking want to change my shirt, too. But, yeah, that one's great. Um, 
the girl that's like the one that like gets chased by the dog. That fucking dog sequence is fucking insane. Yeah. Like it feels like it shouldn't be in that movie, but goddamn it, it's like it's an all timer. Because that little that Doberman it does not fucking quit. It's fucking jumping fences. It's totally. fucking giving chase. Like that dog does just chases after her, and then she ends up in like the killer's lair and starts finding the evidence. And then like you lose the straight razor and you switch to the axe. Mm-hmm. And like that fucking axe death is fucking mean. Like that first hit to her gut. Yeah. Oh, it's just fucking brutal. It is brutal, brutal, brutal stuff. <laughs> and then. I just love that the like you lose the straight razor and it becomes an axe movie. Yeah. From well, is that is is that uh, I I can't quite remember when you know the timeline of when that happens, but I but is that also when the killer changes? N- not quite. Okay. We it's, haven't gotten to that yet. No, but there, no. But there but, are actually two killers in this film. Yeah, and that's the other clever thing mm-hmm. because they're again he shows you when the killers switch. Yeah. Okay. But. You don't get this. You see it briefly, but like you know, but you see the weapon change because like you know the killer has a straight razor, gets the sliding glass door called in the hand. And yeah, the, right. The right. razor, so it's like, well, needs something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's use an axe. Mm-hmm. But you know, I guess we're jumping ahead, but we might as well talk about it because you know John Steiner's character is the killer mm-hmm. for the first part of the movie before um before Anthony Franchosa basically realizes like, hey, this guy's the killer. I can clean up some of my fucking... I'm going to take care of business. Yeah, yeah, And pretend to be the killer just long enough to do my shit. Yeah. Which is... Dirty it, work. Dirty work. Because, like, there's a scene where, like, you know, it's from a distance from, like, the young kid that's, like, kind of like the assistant or whatever, and he mm-hmm. sees it. He doesn't see who the killer is, but, like, when he has that flashback and realizes it's, like, John Steiner's character, it's like, yes, it was I, or whatever fucking yeah. shit. <laughs> and he catches the fucking axe to the head. Yeah. It's fucking fantastic. It's a great fucking transfer. But, you know, there's a lot of things that set up, like, you know, Anthony's character be the fucking killer. You know, you have those flashbacks, you have the pills being taken, and at first you associate it as, like, it's Steiner's character. Mm-hmm. But, like, when you realize, no, it's not. Yeah. Oh, it's so fucking good. And, you know, you know, it might be not the flashiest death of the movie, but John Saxon, when he gets shivved out in broad daylight... Mm-hmm. Like, it's a great scene because you have that woman crying coming up to him and that fucking stupid hat he wears the whole movie. And he's like, ah, it doesn't fit and keeps, like, moving around. When he gets stabbed and the fucking hat flies off, fucking great little joke. Totally. Like, definitely intentionally, like, humorous Mm -hmm. way to die. And then there's, like, the fucking arm chop and the blood spurt of Veronica Lero's character. Like, that death is, like, that was, like, something, like, it was like folklore. It's like, hey, there's a scene in Tenebrae where like this woman gets her arm chopped off and she's holding the stump and she's covering a whole fucking wall in blood and then she gets axed some more. I don't know. It's just fucking incredible. Right. Like no one no one kills people like Argento. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's the best. And th- and that's and that is that is absolutely what attracted me to his work in the first place in you know in the 90s like when we were in high school or whatever you know they these are if if you're someone who's just like watching horror movies to see like gory shit this is this is a great place to start oh yeah <laughs> you know i remember i remember in high school legendary 
I remember high school making a, like a mix of gore effects mm-hmm. for like a science class. I don't know why they let me do it, but like that was in there. Shit from like House by the Cemetery, the eye poke from Zombie, like all that shit was in there. Oh yeah. But like, yeah, dude, I just remember like this playing in that classroom. People were like, what the fuck? Yeah. Because it's just it's so fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we already talked about kind of the anti-suspiria look because it is a daytime horror. It's meant yeah. to be. And also in the book, um, Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, I guess Argento had mentioned that the it takes place in the future. Mm-hmm. Somehow, like, maybe not Blade Runner future, but, like, it's yeah. supposed to be sort of futuristic. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I guess there's a case for it. Yeah. It's, like, definitely a kind of weird sterilized world, except, like, in that opening where they're in New York and, like, Anthony's riding his bike the fucking, um... I guess calling this character's character's Peter Neal. Peter Neal's riding the bike to fucking um, JFK Airport to catch a flight to Italy. Yeah. Which is like, man, I'd be pissed if I was stuck behind a guy riding a fucking bicycle on a fucking freeway in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised he fucking made it to the airport once it run down. You say Peter Neal, it makes me think Sam Neal, and it makes me make the connection of uh, possession in, in no in the mouth of madness. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and just the uh, just the same way that see something something that I don't think they like they they don't make a big deal about it or may, or maybe I am, but I so, like in the way that it's kind of you know he's a he's a horror writer writing about murders and they they are kind of coming to life in a way. Yeah, you know, so it's kind of that same thing. With in the mouth of madness, yes. where it's like his book is coming to life. They don't, they don't. That's not like the main plot here that's going on, but that is kind of what it feels like. Is that it's this meta thing? Yeah, you know. I mean, the the thing about this is like you know the book Tenebrae is I think was you know the way the movie talks about it is like that was the book where it was the most confessional where he's mm-hmm. like kind of admitting the shit, which kind of goes into those flashbacks with Eva Robin's character, yeah, which are like so good and so well done and just like. You know, just like this bunch of boys trying to flock to this one girl and then like getting humiliated. Like the fucking, there's something iconic and like weirdly fetishy, but like also just brutal about that fucking heel, that red shoe going in that kid's mouth, yeah. which ended up being young little Peter Neal. Mm-hmm. It's like every time you, uh, every time you really see something like really red, yeah. it's kind of when you know a, a killing's getting ready to happen. Yeah, but, like, it's also striking when those red shoes show up later on mm-hmm. Veronica's character when, like, she gets them before getting fucking arm chopped off and right. all that. It's it's fucking great shit. Totally. And, again, that red just really pops out because the rest of the movie is so bright and white. Yeah. Oh, the <clears throat> I forgot to mention the one murder in the car when he, like, strangles the, the young kid mm-hmm. with that fucking wire. And that kid turns and looks at him when you know it's Peter Neal as the killer after your first watch. And he's yeah. looking and it's like the kind of look of disappointment and sadness really realizing he got played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's getting fucking the life choked out of him. Totally. It's fucking mean. This movie is fucking <laughs> mean. Yes. On so many fucking levels. It is just goddamn mean. Mm-hmm. And I love it for it. I wish more movies were just this mean. Yeah. Oh, man, I don't even know where else to go because, like, this movie's just incredible. But I do want to point out something, which is, uh, again, top-notch editing from Franco Fraticelli. And I I just started thinking about this when we decided this episode because I was like, when did Franco Fraticelli stop being Argento's editor? Mm-hmm. The last film he edited for him was opera. Okay. And a lot of people consider opera the end of, like, the great run. 
And after opera, that was Argento coming to the States, trying to, like, you know, break into the American market straight on. Instead of, like, making movies in Italy and having them imported over, he was just trying to make American movies. Mm -hmm. And he just never was the same after that. Like, you know, I think certain movies have moments. I think, like, you know, but none of them ever reached that. And I think, like, this something happens to a lot of you know, filmmakers, when they start losing their regular collaborators, yeah, stuff gets missed. Um, Hitchcock had a long-time cinematographer used who ended up, like, falling asleep with a cigarette in bed and, you know, oh, burned shit. himself that. Okay. I can't remember his name. I should look it up. But, like, he passed away. I think he was the cinematographer through The Birds. Maybe he did Torn Curtain, too. I could be wrong. But, like, once he started losing his collaborators, his movies weren't as good. Because, like, you know, some filmmakers need a team. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and when you start peeling away the team, you know it's just like you know I love John Carpenter, but like a, a lot of the a lot of the greats, Scorsese, like they they work with the same people oh, all the way down the line. Yeah, like yeah, I was gonna say like you know I was gonna my point about Carpenter is like mm-hmm. when he stopped working with Dean Cundy, it's like I think his movies still look good, but they right. didn't look as good. Yeah, something got lost, but like no, Scorsese is a great thing because he like either works with michael bauhaus or all robert robert richardson as dps Mm -hmm. for a long time before that was a michael chapman who did like you know i think through raging bull maybe and then like you know thelma shoemaker right who's i think her for i can't i think raging bull was the first movie she edited for him Mm -hmm. if not because i know marshall lucas did new york new york and stuff like that but like you know him and thelma just locked in and I can't imagine, like, I don't think Marty can imagine making a movie without her at this point. Yeah. And there's just a dynamic. It's an understanding. And also the leeway of creativity and the trust and all that. Mm-hmm. And when you start losing trust to collaborators, your movies aren't the same. Totally. And it's happened to countless filmmakers, you know? Like, just something gets lost. And, like, I'm not saying Franco Fraticelli was the, the thing that held it together, but just, like... You know, him not editing Argento's films, none of them were as good. Mm-hmm. You know, they some had moments, but, like, I also think there's other things happening. Argento trying to, like, be less violent, soften his style, like, you know, chasing American audience. And, like, I think when you do that kind of stuff and it fails, it kind of puts you in another place. And plus, as you get older, you get less hungry. And you just, like, kind of fall in trappings. Like, I think... You know, when he made Deep Red after, like, the box office bomb of the five days, Mm -hmm. he came out hungry. When he made Tenebrae, he was fucking hungry again. You know what I mean? Okay. It's just like you had a point to prove. And I think at a certain point where you don't feel like you have a point to prove, your films are different. Um, I guess we should talk about that score, that Goblin score. I guess Goblin with quotes or whatever. Goblin plus drum machine. (laughs) I mean, I think it's my favorite Goblin score. Yeah. Uh, it, it's toss up between that and deep red. It's kind of tough, but like there's some, you know, like the electro disco yeah. element of it. And it's like, it's unsettling. It, it just works. Yeah. And then like, I think it works in the same way. Deep red works where like each of those cues are just a fucking song. And yeah. like, if you say, see goblin play live, you'd be like, Oh shit, they're playing flashing. Oh shit. They're playing the tenebrae theme or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. same thing with deep red. Whereas like when I think of Suspiria or phenomena, I just think of those main themes. Yeah. I don't think the rest of the soundtrack, but these are like complete works of fucking like musical art. And like, they're just fucking bangers, bangers of scores. And this one, you know, it's a toss up. 
I just, it's really fucking good. I don't know what else to say. It's just, it's just fucking good. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the switching murders, but we can talk about the ending because there's like, there's some fucking crazy shots in there. Mm -hmm. When like that police detective who, again, another funny joke. He's like, I never solve any murder mysteries I read. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they definitely had a, uh, a running joke of like the bumbling policeman. I mean, he wasn't, you know? I mean, he was drinking on the job and mm-hmm. like, do you want to drink? Do you drink? Or are you on the job? He's like, no, I always drink on the job. They're like hitting like on women. Yeah. They're like, yeah. But he's, he's kind of suave, but like, you know, you have another kind of like scene like in deep red where like he explains the plot mm-hmm. and he's explaining that Daria Nicolata's character yeah. where he's like, you know, kind of breaking down like, you know, you know, Peter Neal, someone got, woman got murdered. He was suspected, but they could never prove it. And then, like, you know, he's been basically dealing with his trauma through writing. Mm-hmm. And this last book was just the most autobiographical, you know? Yeah. And you get that because the cop was like, I never figure out who the murderer is. But, like, but he says something in Tenet when he reads Tenebrae. It's like, oh, I figured out the killer was, like, like, yeah, right away. That's a great joke. Yeah. He can never figure it out in real life. Or, but... no, well, he could figure it out in real life. He couldn't figure it out in the book. Oh, he couldn't he... figure out the book. Okay. Yeah. Right on. It reminds me of something I saw in Glass Onion where, like, you know, you know, the Daniel Craig character was, like, playing some detective kind of game. Mm-hmm. And, he, like, he would always lose at it. He's like, but I'm the world's greatest detective kind of thing. It's, like, yeah. it's different, you know, functioning in different ways. Mm-hmm. But, like, he solves the murder, and then Peter Neal cuts his throat. Yeah. And, like, seems like everything's done, but then he comes back in, fake razor. Some more clever shit. And then you get that really fucking crazy shot when the cop bends down and Peter Neal's standing right behind him, mm-hmm. getting ready to fucking axe oh, the shit out of him. So good. So good. So good that Robert Zemeckis stole it for like what lies beneath or whatever that movie was. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I've never seen Tenebrae. But it's like literally the same exact shot. Hell yeah. It's like, <laughs> come on, Zemeckis, you know. I would like I, I don't know why that, it is. But that shot's so perfect, you can't I mean I'm I'm sure more than just Zemeckis has stolen it. Oh, a lot, you know? a lot of people have stolen it's it at this so point. It's so good. Oh, yeah. But it's it's so fucking great because it mm-hmm. plays out so well. And then we can get into Dario and Daria's relationship as it deteriorates on screen. Yeah. So we talked about how lovingly he photographed mm-hmm. and like she's like. This is what, 81? 80, 81. Maybe yeah. 80. Actually, 83. So you, it's, oh, okay. It's way deep. Yeah. And Deep Red's like 75. So that was the beginning of their relationship. Mm-hmm. They're falling out, start with Suspiria over the writing credit because, okay. you know, the authorship has been highly disputed. Like, she's like, this was my story. This was my childhood story. This is what I grew up with. And, like, I don't know. And then I think the other thing was she was supposed to play Susie Bannon in it. Mm-hmm. And then they went with Jessica Harper because, you know, trying to get a bigger name and more, you know, American name. So all. Daria got was like a cameo in the airport. Like it's very brief mm-hmm. and it's like, it, you know, I think she felt slighted mm-hmm. Inferno when their problems have begun, he's throwing fucking cats at her. Yep. I'm going to skip ahead to phenomena where he sends a fucking chimp with a goddamn straight razor at her. <laughs> and then in opera, she gets fucking a bullet in the eye through that eye hole which was an incredible sequence, but she said like it nearly like fucking, she was afraid she was going to actually get killed from it the way the effects was. And then she didn't work with them again. Now, at what point did, at what point did their relationship actually end? Was it around opera or was yeah, it? I think it, before? I think it ended right before opera mm-hmm. 
and she's just like, I had enough. And then Dario started using Aja as one daughter. Mm-hmm. He used his other daughter. She was also in Creepers, and she's the one that gets murdered in the beginning of a Creepers phenomena. Okay. But Aja, like, then they have that weird fucking relationship where I ain't got the psychoanalytical way of getting into it. But yeah. Freud, etc. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you look at those movies and you look how, like, things play out. You're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. We'll save that for another day, but I don't know. But like the Tenebra ending, where she, you know, you know, Peter Neal's waiting to her, and like that piece of weird modern art, I guess could be futuristic. That could be a callback to like, is the movie take place in the future when the door opens and it slams that fucking metal thing into him? Mm-hmm. Dude, that the fucking sound work in that when his like fingers are rubbing against the metal and you hear that squeaking, mm-hmm. and then it's raining outside and all that, and she's fucking screaming fucking screaming her goddamn head off oh yeah it is fucking traumatizing and then the movie ends mm-hmm. it's i mean it's kind of another perfect ending like how that deep red ending is perfect like the little the quiet after the storm yeah. this one is this the loud during the storm mm-hmm. one thing i should note even though it's never actually been confirmed by anyone is um Darius Nicolata was allegedly dubbed in for the U.S. version by Teresa Russell, who was, you know, in a ton of Nicholas Rogue movies, obviously bad timing and things like that. And it kind of sounds like her. I think it's kind of a cool thing if that's true. Can't prove it. Another thing I should mention, during the U.S. sequence when they shot the opening, um, Bill Lustig worked on it. And he had a long, he's had a long time relationship with Dario over the years. Mm-hmm. Actually, Bill used to look for work for Anchor Bay, and he was instrumental in help, you know, re-releasing these movies uncut in the U.S. for the first time. Okay, I don't know, man. I again, it's tough to call. Like, which one I like better, Deep Red Tenebrae, Deep Red Tenebrae. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I if I pick one as one, the other one's one A. There's yeah. no number two. Yeah, yeah. And I've always kind of stood by that. I know it's kind of a cheat. So it's like Deep Red or Tenebrae, and then Inferno is my number three. Cool. So, I don't know. Final thoughts on Tenebrae. Super sick. I, I love it. I always have. Uh, it is great to great to get a new watch in and, and really throw it under the lens. Um, super sick. If you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know. There's a nice 4K. There's a Blu-ray. And um, if you're in the Massachusetts, Brookline area, it's closing out. Um, The Coolidge's January Jow, they're showing Phil Blankenship's, like, only the only uncut U- um, English language print. I showed this a few years ago when I did um, Tenebrae and Dress to Kill together. Mm-hmm. Where, again, I've mentioned this a bunch, but I can't help but always mentioning because the Palman always pretends he never heard of Dario Argento. And Nancy <laughs> Allen's like, oh, I auditioned for Inferno. I was up for it when James Woods was in it. Mm-hmm. So, run and tell that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hell yeah. But, I don't know. I We're going to take one last break here. And when we return, we're just going to be rewatch and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. <laughs> 私は恐怖が振りまくアルシュの快楽の賛美者である。私はここに一本の恐怖映画を制作した。これは皆様に対する私からの挑戦と思っていただきたい。ダリオ・アルジェント。
but I don't know. I haven't seen it, so it could be there. So who the fuck knows? Um, and I, uh, I, I don't see a lot of new films. I kind of make it a point not to. I just don't. I kind of don't care. Like if people are still talking about, you know, if people are still talking about an old boy in twenty years. I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like sometimes I like to give some a little time, give it some room to breathe. If it's still if it's still important a year or two later, I'll check it out. But hey, I just saw a new movie. I just saw The Menu. How was that? I didn't see it in the theater though. I, I'm kind of G. I mean, I still just watched it at home. Um, I I liked it. I didn't love it, but I I I really it's I really liked it. I really liked it. It's I mean, I don't want to even. There's not too much to say. It's just I I recommend it. I think you should see it. I do want to it, see it. You know, it's I, interesting. It's a great. Who cares? I it, I do. Not wanna... everything has to be. I did want to see it, but then, you know, lost my HBO or whatever. HBO Max, is that what they call yeah. it now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. lost that subscription. Anyway, I, I mean. I turn on my HBO Max every couple of months to rewatch The Shivering Truth. <laughs> and, and just like, oh, the menu is on here, too. Let's fuck it. Let's see it. Let's, let's go. Um, but yeah, it's just a. It's cool, man. It's cool enough. Fuck it. Well, fuck yeah. it. Sometimes it's all you need, mm-hmm. you know? My, my expectations, like. If it's a new movie, is like, is it cool? Yeah, that's all I need. It's like I don't, I don't need a classic. I don't need a fucking like, this is the greatest movie in the like last twenty years kind of shit. Like I just want it to be cool, and then maybe let it marinate for a while, and then be like, be able to appreciate it down the line. I, I think you know the the dangers of anointing movies to be like these new great fucking works of art, and maybe some are. It's like everything needs to marinate. Night of Living Dead came out in 68. Most people thought it was just some schlocky shit. And yeah. it became the groundbreaking movie it is. Mm-hmm. You know? Let things marinate. Yeah. Let things earn their acclaim. Let things age into what they need to be. Totally. Because when you anoint something right away, it becomes disposable. Mm-hmm. You know? Because if you if you think you've just seen the greatest movie ever, and you saw it on streaming or whatever, you gotta let it age. Yeah. And that's my one concern about the streaming era of stuff. It's like things won't get a chance to age because, like, the way media is now, like, you know, if something doesn't well, it could fucking disappear. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's sad. It's a sad state of affairs that some stuff can just, some media can just disappear forever. I mean, if you think about, it, like, the amount of movies that fucking failed and tanked at the box office, mm-hmm. if they didn't get a second life on, like, home video or, like, repertory screenings or like just being rediscovered or reevaluated, they wouldn't be that way. If they came out now, some of those movies just might be buried or fucking deleted off a fucking server on a streaming platform and never seen again. Totally. And that's fucking scary. Um, what the hell else? Let's see real quick. That's really that's it. I saw I saw the menu. Recommended. Recommended. Some people compared it to like funny games even. I don't know. It's, I, I, no, no, so I, and, and it's not, but just, uh, but I, I just say that just to say like, it's interesting. Like it's not like, it's not, it's not like funny games because it's not really like anything I can think of. It's hmm. a fair point. You know, it's yeah. a, I can't say that about too many things that it's just like, Oh, this is just, I didn't know what this was going to be about. And this really is just, it's just doing its own thing. That's kind of cool. So Definitely want to check it out. At least take that as you will. And uh, music-wise, you know what, man? I um, after the when it hit December, and it's like, all right, well, now we got to make our year-end lists, and so I I made sure to listen to a bunch of the the new music I had discovered last year to make sure that I had my fucking year-end list, whatever. But now that we've gotten past that, 
now I have no pressure to listen to brand new music and <laughs> I can just like kind of have music on in the background and not really pay too much attention to it. So I've been listening to like a bunch of kind of like more, uh, I guess you could call it post rock if you wanted to, but just that kind of like late nineties, early two thousands scene of like instrumental indie rock, whatever Mercury program, Godspeed, you black emperor, like just all, you know, any of that shit where it's just 20 minute long fucking songs and you know, just fucking zoning out, bro. So that's what I've been listening to. All right, man. For my read, I ain't got nothing. I mean, it's not called. You've been, you've been taking these plane rides. What are you doing on a plane? I listen to music, man. Yeah? Yeah. All I, right. I, every time I try to read, I just can't concentrate enough because, like, people, you know, I always sit in the aisle and people, like, bump my arm and shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually do a lot more writing. And, like, you know, speaking of writing, this is a good time to plug Issue two of the Cinematic Magazine, the January Giallo issue, actually sold a good bit of copies and getting really low on that one. So it's been kind of fun to write again. Obviously, it has nothing to do with reading, but those of you who aren't me can read it and purchase your copies at the Cinematic Boy Big Cartel. Look at that plug, plug for me not actually reading shit. So there. Uh, watch. I've been because it's January Giallo, and a lot of it, some of it's research, some of it's just prep for you know context for like intros. Even though it, I won't, it may not go into the actual intro. It's like I've been rewatching a lot of Giallo films and a lot of classics and stuff. Coolest thing I got to do is I watched that Technicolor print of a lizard and a woman's skin twice. Nice. In the same day, because they did a full tech check to do the soft subtitling, and I sat there and watched it, and then I watched it with the crowd. Hell yeah! And it. It's kind of cool because I got two different experiences out of it. You mm-hmm. know, I got like, wow, I'm just here by myself watching this fucking great fucking movie. And then I got to watch it with the crowd. So that that's probably my favorite watch. Uh, another thing I watched, I don't remember if we talked about it in the last episode. I'm just going to mention again. I watched Freak Scene, which is a documentary on Dinosaur Jr. Cool. You know, it was only 80, 85 minutes. And I, I'm going to say this could have been longer. Oh, nice. Like, you know, I feel like it kind of like it was too compact and maybe a little too clean, even though it mentioned like, you know, the drama between Lou and Jay and how that band fell apart. The the thing is like, you know, they talk about their first band, Deep Wound, which is one of the greatest hardcore bands ever mm-hmm. from the Boston area, you know, and they talk about it for two minutes. Yeah. And it's just like, and it's weird because they have the singer Deep Wound, but he doesn't show up during the Deep Wound section. He shows up way later in the fucking documentary. Oh, yeah. Crazy. And it's just like. You could spend like maybe five minutes on it. I know it's right. just like, you know, they were young and they only put out like EP and some comp right. tracks, but it's like, I know this isn't the Deep Wound documentary, but you could, you could spend a little time. I mean, I, I kind of feel like they could have sent, spent a little time on Sebado too. I know, mm-hmm. again, this is like a Dinosaur Jr. documentary and the focus is on Jay, but like, yeah. I think part of the Dinosaur Jr. narrative is like when Lou Barlow was fucking bitter as shit getting yeah. fired from Dinosaur Jr. And all those fucking songs talking shit about Jay Mask is on those Sebado records. Yeah. Like, I forget the one. There's like 40 songs and like probably half of them are just like talking shit. Yeah. They, so so that's really not a... They don't really... They mention Sebado, mm-hmm. but they don't get deep in it. They mention the few. They're the be, One you, of my you, favorite... You'd think dwelling on drama would be a nice selling point. A nice, you know? Yeah. It just, it, that's why... I mean, I like the documentary, but it's definitely light. There's a lot of really great talking heads. Got Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine, which was kind of expected. But I wonder if those... I, now I think, like, probably those those nerds. Those nerds are probably like, we're not talking about this. <laughs> you know, they, they dictated a little bit of how, how the documentary is going to 
going to play out. I mean, they talk about it, but, you know, then they also get to that. Even when they get to the major label, I feel like it's just too condensed. When they, like, mm-hmm. after, you know, from Green Mine on, when, like, you know, Murph was still drumming for a little bit before he left. Like, yeah. it just, like, it just felt like it, it was just a little too light, and they just didn't dig mm-hmm. deep enough. Because, like, you know, they talked about Feel the Pain and how it was a big hit, but, like, they didn't get into how big it was they also you know they kind of like mentioned like oh yeah Kurt Cobain wanted Jay to be in Nirvana and Jay was like Jay's so crazy Jay's comment was like well yeah we were bigger at the time wow when, awesome at, at the time yeah, yeah how yeah. quick that changed I mean but you know it fuck man I mean Dinosaur Jr. like when they did have those MTV hits like they were they were massive oh yeah definitely it was, it was maybe only one or two songs Two, two is what I remember, but it might have just been the one. This, just, the, the video where they're playing golf. That's Feel the Pain, yeah, yeah which was probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like the documentary, and it was cool to hear all those songs, and, like, great talking heads. Like I said, Kevin Shields, My Bloody Valentine, mm-hmm. Black Francis from the Pixies. We got Ken- Henry Rollins? Oh, you know Henry Rollins was up do we, there. Do we got some Dave Grohl? No Dave Grohl. Interesting. Was there Mike Watt? Mike Watt showed up. Right on. Uh, you know, Kim Gordon. I say the Sonic Youth members. Yeah, I think you, you, I, can, you can pretty much guess who's showing up. Yeah. But but that's sick. But they also did that weird like Red thing where they had like different people play with them, like Kim Gordon, like and Henry Rollins, like both singing versions of Don't. Oh, crazy. Okay. And like, you know, they also showed us I remember when this happened to Fonda where like Henry Rollins did a QA with Dinosaur Jr. and then they would play kind of thing. So they mentioned all that stuff. They played with Henry Rollins? No, Henry Rollins sat him down and did a QA with them mm-hmm. and talked about their career and then they played. Okay. But there was a there was a concert where they brought out a bunch of friends and different people played with them. Like, you know, you know, Bob Moult, who's also in the documentary. So I mean, great talking heads, but I, I just feel like I was I guess maybe personally, and maybe it's not that important. They didn't talk about Judgment Night. I wanted to talk about the fucking Dell song. Yeah, Dell, the song they did with Dell, the Funky Homo mm-hmm. Sapien. I mean, it was just Jay and Dell because I think Jay played every instrument on that song. Yeah, yeah. And they they get into the reunion and that kind of you know when Lou and Murph came back and like all that stuff's cool, but it's just it just felt a little too light. Mm-hmm. I mean, they gave a little section on them covering the Cure, like just like Heaven. And that's single. Yeah, it's like, is that, I mean, it's great and, pro- and and probably made a fan out of a lot of people, I think. I think that's something that's definitely a, you know, something for, for people to grab onto that, that may not know their band otherwise. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it felt like it was two cliff notes. Like, yeah. you know, they talked about how they had to become, they were Dinosaur and they had to become Dinosaur Jr. Okay. because the other band, Dinosaur. But mm-hmm. everything was so quick and, like, they didn't even really get into, like, the problems with SST where the reason why they left and had the sue to get their catalog back because Greg Ginn got high and fucking didn't pay anyone royalties because yeah. he's too big putting out Gone Records and whatever other fucking side mm-hmm. projects that he was working on. Right. Like, yeah, I, I wonder then, yeah, I mean, how much of this was, like, omitted on purpose? You I, know, how much of it is, is them, like, trying to craft their, their own story? I, I mean, know, man, all that stuff is just, like, it sounds like uh, it sounds like they went light on the interesting parts of the story. They did, although <laughs> there is video footage where Lou and Jay get into it at cool. a show. And it's kind of great because, like, Lou was just being a dick, and he's just playing one note mm. during a song. And like Murph's like, man, I it's like I was, and Jay's like, I thought Murph was gonna hit him, but like, no, Jay freaks out on him and starts fucking pushing him. And it's like the most emotion I've ever seen from Jay Mascus in my life. And Lou's got his hands up, just fucking taunting him. 
Like that's, <laughs> that was his last show before the reunion. I'm assuming. Uh, you know? it might have been. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they talked like Jay basically fired Lou because he wasn't contributing to the band. He's like, you know, he's like, you know, just write a song here and there, and like he's like, I wanted him to be part of the band, and Lou's like, fuck you, because he was just bitter and angry. I love those. Like, I love when there's just like one or two Lou songs on a Dinosaur record, though, man. Those are because they're always awesome. They always are awesome, and just again, I feel like they probably could have talked a little bit more about Sebado. I get it it's a dinosaur junior mm-hmm. documentary they also talk about playing like um bug as a record because like that was the record where they like all the turmoil was and they were like all falling apart okay. and like you know jay's like you know is kind of cathartic to play with all those guys again kind of thing mm-hmm. so it's cool it's an interesting documentary but it does feel a little light and especially at 85 minutes i don't need to be two and a half hours mm-hmm. but maybe 100 minutes yeah. flesh it out a little bit that's just me. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I've been watching. And listening-wise, because I watched the documentary, obviously went back and listened to a lot of Dinosaur Jr. tracks. I also was been listening to various um, Giallo soundtracks. I remember driving around in the snow in Salem and going to Brookline, just listening to, like, you know, various Morricone, Nicolai, and Nora Orlandi, like, scores, plus plenty of other shit. And the other thing I've been listening to, and this has only been like maybe the last day, is um, the new EP from One Step Closer called Songs for the Willow, specifically the first track, Dark Blue. Jesus Christ. Cool. That shit fucking rips. It's like, I guess it's melodic hardcore, is what Mm -hmm. you call it, but like it goes into other places, and like I feel like if I heard other bands do it, I probably wouldn't like it as much. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of those things where everything clicks, and it just, hey, this fucking works. Cool. So that's what I've been reading, watching, and or listening to. Well, maybe not reading because I haven't been reading shit. But that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void podcast. This is, again, January Giallo edition. It's been good so far. Um, got a lot of things coming up this year in the void. Hopefully we'll be more consistent podcast-wise and there won't be any more unexpected four-month hiatuses. But I, I think we've we got the system down now, I think. Maybe. 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 I don't know. Maybe, but till next time, see you in the void. When you see the color deep red, just you close your eyes. eyes.